Well, good morning again. If you are a guest or visitor, my name is Jeff Strong. I'm the senior pastor here, and I want to welcome you to our Easter service. Why don't we stand and just greet each other, just say happy Easter for a few moments. Go ahead, stand up. Wish each other a a wonderful Easter. I'd like to read the resurrection account from John's gospel. It's what I read at the start of the service, John 21 to 18, but I'd like to read it again. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen that were lying there, but didn't go in. And then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside, and he saw and believed. They did not yet understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken away my Lord, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not recognize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? And thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, just tell me where you've put him, and I will go get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. John's account of the resurrection might be my favorite. Part of the reason why is it centers on one woman, Mary Magdalene. And she's mourning the death of Jesus. And that's a really important context to understand when you come to Easter. The very first Easter happened in the midst of of overwhelming grief and darkness. Mary approached Jesus' tomb, certain of only a few things. Jesus had been betrayed by one of his own disciples. He'd been handed over to the authorities. He had been mercilessly mocked and tortured and beaten and shamed and finally crucified to death on Friday. And Mary's going to the tomb to further cover Jesus' body with spices and ointments out of necessity to prepare him for embalmment. So as Mary approaches the tomb, she is walking through the valley of the shadow of death. She is walking through the valley of complete and utter hopelessness. 
And the world, this Easter, I think has moved towards this Easter along a very similar path. Tuesday's terror attacks in Belgium were the latest in a string of atrocities that have shattered any illusion that the world we live in is essentially a safe and happy place. That evil and suffering are actually just outliers. They're the exception, not the rule. The rule is what's normal is a peaceful, happy existence. And Tuesday's attacks probably caught all of us off guard. They surprised us. But you live long enough in this world and you no longer become surprised at either the frequency or depth of suffering and evil that exists in the world. I suspect that for most of us, what would actually genuinely surprise us if there was an inbreaking of some kind of really good news, we're used to bad news, we're almost numb to it. What would surprise us, what would cause us to stop and reflect would be the inbreaking of news that was genuinely good. Something that um, pushed back, something that challenged the defining meta narrative of our time, which is life is hard and then you die. Does good news like that exist? And I don't mean the tiny one candle burning amidst the darkness stories of hope. They show up on BuzzFeed once in a while. You're like, oh, that's cute. They warm the cockles of your heart for a moment and then you forget them. Because really, actually, all those stories do is reinforce the paradigm that yes, shards of light break through, but darkness is still always the context. Darkness always has had the upper hand. Darkness is always going to have the upper hand. So this is the question that I'm asking. Is there good news of a nature and degree and scale and power that could disrupt that entire assumption that suffering and evil and death lies at the very heart of life? Is there good news that has the power to overturn not just the concepts of suffering, sin, death, but to overturn those things in themselves? I suspect on some level, whether or not we're completely conscious of it, everybody comes into this space this morning hungry for that kind of good news. We're hoping against hope that there is some kind of universal force for good. There's a power to change. There's, there's a genuinely transformative hope that could overthrow the forces of darkness in our world, the forces of darkness that seem to be at play in my life, the forces of darkness that I understand and see exist in my heart. If I'm just take a, a moment's glance. The heart, the very heart of Christianity is that this good news actually exists. That kind of good news exists. That kind of hope is real. And it's centered on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. At the very start of his gospel account, where he's putting together a biography of Jesus, Mark writes these words. First line, he says, The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The word Mark uses in Greek, gospel, is translated as good news. That's what it means. It's the good news of Jesus. Christianity offers good news for anyone who's starving for some. Christianity offers good news, not simply good advice. That's a very important distinction. Good advice is information on how you can live differently, how you can do differently so that your life is happier, better, um, more integrated, happier, healthier. Christianity has a lot to say about those things. But good advice isn't the heart of the Christian message. 
the Bible declares good news. And that means something has happened in human history that changes the way the world is here and now, whether or not you accommodate to it, whether or not you bend to it, whether or not you reorder your life in the way that you should. Good advice is something you need to do. Good news is something that has been done and something that you can now take part in. The resurrection is the central event, not just in the Bible, but in human history. And when you understand the resurrection, when you just even begin to take hold of it, there's no going back. This is a dangerous thing you did to show up this morning. Because once you understand, even, um, even in just seminal form, what the resurrection is pointing to, you cannot live the same way, whether you're a believer or whether you're not. Because the resurrection proclaims a power and hope unlike anything else. It actually puts to the forefront good news that ushers in a new way of living, a new worldview that transforms, it just turns upside down or right side up, what it means to be human in the world, who God is, who we are. Um, what does it mean to live uh, as a human being in this world? Where is this whole thing called human history going? Like, where's the whole narrative moving towards? I want to be very clear this morning that we're all on the same page when I talk about the word resurrection. What do I mean by the word resurrection? The resurrection is the truth that Jesus lived, he died, and then three days later, he was resurrected to new life. Christians talk about Jesus rising again. Now, for some of us, that's like, it's kind of stating the obvious. I kind of knew that much. But I think there's something really, really significant that we have to push past that initial sense of, okay, the resurrection means Jesus is alive. I get that. There's something deeper behind an understanding of what the resurrection is. See, the Gospels declare that Jesus was resurrected. And resurrection is different than resuscitation. Jesus didn't simply just come back to life as we know it. He didn't just come back to life in the status quo where there's life, but still the dominant forces at work are sin and death. And so decay and death are inevitable to him. He was resurrected into an entirely new kind of life. One that can no longer be touched by sickness and death. One commentator said this. He said, we're not talking about, we're not talking about Jesus being resurrected, this bodily resurrection. We're not talking about a body brought back to its former life. A body that needs food, can get sick, ages, and eventually is just going to die again. In the Gospels, we read of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Jesus did not resurrect Lazarus. Jesus resuscitated Lazarus. It was a miracle, but Lazarus later dies. In a resurrected state, however, the body is physical, it's real, it's tangible, it's not a ghost, it's not ephemeral, it's real, it's material, but it's incorruptible. It cannot die, it cannot age, it cannot become ill. Now, for some people sitting here, you might say, I've heard that, or maybe, okay, that helps me to make sense of that, Jesus is alive. I'm not, how is that good news, kind of? Like, maybe that's like an embarrassing question to ask. Maybe we've been in church for a long time, and we're like, I kind of don't really get why that's good news. I get why, why it would be good news to people who knew Jesus then and were heartbroken, they thought he was dead, now he's alive. Oh, that's, that's awesome. 
But you fast forward 2,000 years, here we are 2016, Nelson. I'm not, how does that, even if it's true, let's just concede the point that Jesus is actually resurrected from the dead. He's still alive. How is that good news for, for you and I, for us, for this city, for this world? Well, I want to suggest that the resurrection is good news because it means that real, material, substantial hope and transformative hope exists for every single person. If you notice, it's, it's hidden in plain sight. It's very subtle in John's Gospel. When Jesus is resurrected, Mary doesn't recognize him at the start. It's Jesus, but who does she mistake Jesus for? The gardener. Now, the irony of this account is that Mary mistakenly thinking that he's the gardener is actually correct. See, the opening, the opening chapter of the Bible is a story about a God who creates a garden. And then he puts the very first gardener in that garden. And he named the first gardener Adam. But this was a gardener who very quickly failed at his task to bring out the God-given glory and potential of this world to obey God, to, to lead to the flourishing for all of God's creation, this first gardener turned the world into a wasteland of war and sin and violence. But there's another gardener that was coming, a second gardener, a true and better Adam. And what this gardener is going to do is restore the ruined garden. Christ is the true and better gardener who offers to cultivate new creation with an all who embrace him. The, in this risen Jesus, we find real transformative hope on three levels for our world, for ourselves, and for our future. I'm going to talk briefly about each of those. Number one, the resurrection offers hope for the entire world. Because Jesus' resurrection means that God has acted decisively in history and is getting his story back on track. What's his story? To redeem and restore what was lost and broken, what has been marred and defaced and violated because of the poison and the toxin of sin. In Ephesians 1.9, it says, God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment. Here was his purpose in Christ, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, that is Christ. God wants to put all things under the benevolent, gracious, self-sacrificing leadership of Jesus. Colossians 1.19-20 says, God was pleased to have the, his fullness dwell in him, Jesus, and through Jesus to reconcile all things to himself. To take things that were far apart, situations and people that had irreconcilable difference, and Jesus stands in the gap and through his power and glory pulls them back together into harmony the way God intended relationships to be, the way God intended the world to be. The Bible's message is that while God created a good world, humanity plunged it into darkness, but God didn't give up. He didn't say, oh, that's the way you want to roll? That's fine. You've made your bed. You lie in it. I'm off to do something else. God is actively at work to redeem and to restore, to take back. Lost sheep, broken people, seemingly hopeless situations. God is a God who moves into the spaces where it looks like death has won and brings life brings restoration and healing. Under the first Adam, we were plunged into a world that 
strained under the curse and burden of sin. But the scriptures hinted that somehow God was going to send a deliverer, a rescuer, a savior who was going to overcome that evil and death. And when the Bible uses the term redemption, when I use the term restoration, I want to make sure people don't hear that what I'm saying is things can get a little bit better. When God uses the word redemption, when redemption is used in Scripture, it doesn't mean, again, the world's a pretty terrible place, but once in a while there can be a few tweaks and you kind of learn to get through it. It's okay. Redemption doesn't mean, as an optimistic evolutionist might say, well, over time things tend to work out a little bit and there's lots of suffering and evil, but there's also a bit of a voice towards some trajectory towards hope. And nor does redemption mean God's plan is to rescue souls and people up out of earth because this whole thing's going to hell in a handbasket anyways. God's, uh, this, is, this is a whole failed enterprise. So my only goal is to just shuttle people off, give them a, a one-way ticket to heaven and just rescue them off of this, uh, you know, maybe literally God-forsaken rock. That is not what redemption is. Redemption is nothing less than the remaking of creation itself. And it's that God has done this having defeated the evil that was defacing and distorting it. He doesn't let evil have, this, have the final word. He doesn't say, oh, evil is one here, so, okay, well, we'll just kind of start over and go over here in a different dimension. God says, no, that was mine. That was very good. The forces of evil and sin and death, they don't own that. I'm taking it back. And he's doing that decisively in Jesus. See, the first garden, Eden, was given a first gardener, Adam, but that gardener's attitude and actions led to a world full of chaos and sin. But this resurrected Jesus is a true and better Adam who has fulfilled what it truly means to be an image bearer of God. We look at Jesus and we say, that's what a human being is supposed to look like, who loves God and loves his neighbor as himself. And this gardener, now that he's been resurrected and given authority over all things, this gardener is going to work to cultivate restoration and hope and healing amidst a world that mistakenly believes death is the end of the story. Sin has the final word. Darkness is what is there to meet me when it's time for the curtain call. The world's true king is Jesus. This gardener who has broken the back of death itself and has now been enthroned as Lord over all. Number two, the resurrection offers hope for everybody in this room, each of us. Because God doesn't just want to redeem the world. He actually wants to redeem you and the things that are important to you and the situations um, of darkness and hopelessness and hurt and complexity and confusion and apathy in your life. With the failure of the first gardener, Adam, sin poisoned our lives so that four levels were completely uh, thrown out of joint. Our relationship with God, completely thrown out of joint. Our relationship with our neighbors just went haywire. Our relationship with even our self-understanding, our sense of identity and and how we're supposed to live, uh, totally uh, mucked up. And our relationship to the the world around us. What is it, how am I supposed to, what does it mean to live in this world, to be a human being, to, to, what am I supposed to do with my life? What's my purpose here? Those levels, God, others, ourselves, and creation, all got poisoned because of the first gardener's sin. But this second and better gardener, in and through the resurrection, is saying, I want to bring reconciliation and healing to all those levels. All those things are out of joint, 
I have the power to put them back together. I can fix things. I can restore things to the way they were meant to be. Like, really. And not just, like, in the life after death. I, I start that now. This gardener is willing to get into the dirt and grime of your life. Like, your present situations. The situations that you wouldn't even share on a Sunday morning like this. Because you're like, I'm ashamed and embarrassed that this is happening in my life or that this habit is overtaking me or this reality. I can't seem to get past it. I feel like I should. I can't. This gardener is willing to get his hands dirty and replace the weeds of addiction and shame and guilt and death and dysfunction with shalom and peace and joy and love and new life. And the resurrection announces that sickness and death and dysfunction and hopelessness, those things that have defined your life or maybe particular spheres of your life, those do not have to have the final word. Those don't have the last say if you surrender your life to Jesus. Jesus has conquered the power of sin and death, and therefore, the power of sin and death no longer has to rule over your life. There's a way out through Jesus' power and love and forgiveness. And the resurrection gives you a new identity. We live in an age where the mantra is, you, kind of, you, you self-determine who you are, you're an autonomous human being, you figure out who you are, you carve your own identity and you hold to that identity, but you're the one. No, no one can tell you who you are, no one can define for you your reality and certainly your identity. That's for you to decide. Sounds great on paper. It's a miserable way to live. Because we are terrible at self-identity formation. You wait long enough, life will teach you and should humble you to realize processes of socialization, experiences, wounds, hardships, mistakes, habits will slowly overtake you. You will not be able to willpower yourself into the kind of life that you want. You want. It will not happen. And even for the people, I thought, there's got to be people who would say, no, I've, I've actually done that. I have done that. I've, I've broken certain patterns of dysfunction in my life, and here I am. Here, here's, my, here's my thesis. I think that what often happens in those situations is we simply exchange one broken dysfunctional set of identity patterns for another one. And we exchange those patterns, but these are more socially acceptable patterns. So people will celebrate those things. We can celebrate those things. But from God's point of view, it's ju you're just exchanging one set of brokenness for another. It's polishing deck chairs on the Titanic. It's not that's not redemption. That's reshuffling. It's not redemption. Jesus offers something better. Living that way is exhausting. And the resurrection opens up a better way. When we say yes to Jesus, this gardener goes to work, often secretly, to begin cultivating a new life within us. He brings to life the things in us that are truly us, our true selves in him begin to take shape. And simultaneously, and often very graciously and very gently, he begins to put to death those things in us which are anti-life, anti-God, anti-human, anti-ourselves, anti-relationship. This gardener knows how to grow good fruit. And he knows how to weed out the things that sometimes we don't even think need to leave the garden. You're like, this is fine. God says, no, this is actually a trap. Let me free you from this. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone has accepted Christ, bent the knee to him, new creation has come. The old has gone, the new has come. Christianity offers a tangible way to break from a dysfunctional, broken, hell-bent past. Only one with the authority of God can free us 
from our past and empower us to cultivate a new way of life. Not just say, go do it, but I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to put my spirit within you and empower you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to lead you. And only the resurrected Jesus has been given that authority. And so he wants to use his power in our lives, not to oppress us, not to hold us back, not to restrain us, not to shame us, to uh, liberate us from all of those destructive anti-God forces, to lead us into the kind of life that he sees for us, that he created us for, but we can't see because blindness of pride or sin or any manner of things. In Ephesians 1.18, this is an awesome verse where uh, a Christian is writing to an early church and he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. The power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. Because of the resurrection, you're not just given good advice, now go live this way, go do it, it's just a new religious path that's opened up to you. It's an entirely new power that's opened up to you. And that changes everything. There's hope for a new direction in your life, regardless of the weeds or the lifelessness that currently inhibits and inhabits your garden. And the resurrection gives you a new purpose and mission. One person that I was reading this week said, you know, left to ourselves, you live long enough, and we all kind of lapse into kind of an entropy a psychological and spiritual and social entropy. We acquiesce in general to the belief that things are kind of getting worse. There's really not much we can do about it. But we are wrong. Our task, he's writing to Christians, in the present is to live as resurrection people. And he says, people who believe in the resurrection, that God is restoring and making a new world and empowering a people to go into the world with light and love and grace and hope, he says, those people are unstoppably motivated to work for that new world in the present. Resurrection people are dangerous people because they understand that the status quo doesn't have to be the status quo. In their finances, in their relationship, in their volunteerism, in this uh, social context, with this reality, you don't hear resurrection people use catchphrases like, it is what it is. Uh, what are you going to do? Resurrection people know hope and real change is possible. What does it look like to work towards that future now? I feel like after following Jesus for 20 years, I still just know a fraction of, of what that means. But this Easter has given me new eyes to see because it has to mean at least this. If Jesus is the true and better gardener, and if he is the gardener that brings forth resurrection, then, as followers of Jesus, I'm to, I'm, to ta- I'm to follow his lead. He wants me to follow him into that calling. So I need to figure out how he's calling me, you need to figure out how he's calling you, to go into every square inch of creation, every sphere of life, and cultivate life where there's death. Cultivate hope where there's no hope. Cultivate truth in a culture that's um, under the illusion of lies. Redemption doesn't mean waiting until Jesus takes us to heaven. Redemption means working now to cultivate on earth a life of heaven. And he wants you to be part of that. Jesus is alive. And because he lives, 
You have a living hope and access to a power that can change things here and now for the better. I want to close on this one thing because I think that is great, but it's really just a lead up to the final last thing, which is super, super, super great. The resurrection offers real hope to all of our future. The risen Jesus doesn't just offer hope for here and now. That is a huge part of the message of Easter. But he also offers hope for the there and later, for eternity, for life after death. In 1 Corinthians 15, 23, Jesus is called a first fruit. If you had a harvest, the very first things that come up, oh, those are the first fruits. And they signal that fruit like it is going to continue. But these are the first fruits. They're a sign pointing to what is going to eventually crop up. Jesus is called the first fruits. The resurrected Jesus is called the first fruit. He's a prototype. He's a sign pointing to where all of human history is going. The resurrected resurrected Jesus is like a breach of God's future into the present. We're getting a glimpse. He's like a trailer for a coming attraction. And we say, we're getting a glimpse, but we're like, this is where everything is going? In Revelation, the last book of the Bible, a disciple named John is given this vision of where human history is going, of where God's redemptive, restorative, redeeming work, where the whole thing is moving towards. And he writes these words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain because the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down because these words are trustworthy and true. The great hope that Christianity offers is not after you die, you can go to heaven. As one scholar says, Heaven's important, but it's not the end of the world. Heaven points to a life after death. The resurrection points to a life after, a life after death. God's grand design isn't that we inhabit eternity in some ethereal space as points of light and of consciousness and a disembodied reality. Jesus is the first fruits who has a body like us, but different, enhanced, incorruptible, those in Christ, those who are partnering with God and saying yes to God now, they get to be part of that future. Where not just humans are changed, but the whole cosmos, a new heaven and a new earth. There's continuity. There's things that are familiar. I tell my kids, they're like, what's, it, what's heaven going to be like? And I say, well, we're not exactly sure what heaven's like, but we know what the new heavens and the new earth is going to be like. Every single thing that's beautiful and good and fun and wonderful about this life is there, but it's turned up to 11. And every single thing that is dark, hurtful, um, difficult, confusing, um, is completely non-existent. I still remember my, my eldest when she was four saying, Daddy, does that mean there's no timeouts in heaven? And I said, no. The, the great hope of Christianity is that there are no timeouts in heaven. The ultimate hope of the resurrection points towards a new heavens and a new earth. And out of that future, out of that conviction that this is where we're going, that's the coming attraction. 
that's what's coming down the pipe. Now we as Christians, we as people who are responding to Jesus, are to say, how do I live so that my life, imperfectly, yes, but over time, becomes a kind of trailer to my friends and family. They look at my life. They see my struggles. They see God doing redemptive things in my life. And they're like, that is different. Our church, we should be a people who are such a force for good within this community that people are a little confused. They're wondering, why, what is driving this? It's not just religiosity. It's something deeper. And we just always have to be pointing back and saying, I'm just following Jesus' lead. I'm just following the great gardener. I want to cultivate life where there's death. I want to live in anticipation of this amazing future. Do you see why I said that when this vision of the resurrection grips you, even very, very subtly, if it just gets a little hook in, it's very difficult to walk out those doors and go back to life as usual. And I don't care whether you're a believer or not. It is very difficult to stare the truth of the resurrection in the face and say, yeah, that's neat. You will find yourself either repulsed by it or drawn to it. You cannot be indifferent to it. Once you understand the resurrection, there is no going back. So let me go back to my question that I started this whole thing off with. Is there good news to such a scale, to such a degree, that it would actually disrupt the assumption that suffering and evil and death lie at the heart of life? Is there good news that could overthrow those forces and replace them with light, love, grace, truth, power, healing, redemption? And the answer that we're given at Easter is yes, absolutely. That good news exists. There really is good news for the entire world. There really is good news for you. There really is good news for our future. And it's all centered on the resurrection Jesus. So go to him and commit your life to him. Serve him and go into the world with a renewed enthusiasm to learn what it means to follow the true and better gardener who brings forth new life and new hope to everything and everyone he touches. Let's pray. God, would the glory of Easter just overwhelm our hearts and imaginations and lives, God. I don't know where everyone is at this morning. I don't know how they entered this space. But I pray that all of us would be just overwhelmed in a new way by your grace and what we have access to because you were resurrected, because you conquered sin and death. Teach us who are believers to live as resurrection people, to live inside of that bigger story and draw those whose hearts are resistant to you or far from you, but draw them to yourself, God. Take away the barriers and help these people to see and understand you simply want to bring forth life and flourishing within them. We thank you for conquering sin and death, for living a life that we couldn't live, for dying a death that we were supposed to die and rising again and offering us access to an entirely new kind of life under your leadership. In Jesus' name, amen.